Welcome back to another Trident Wargaming podcast. Today, I am joined by uh, Aiden Vollmer, one of the members of our Trident Wargaming competitive team. Uh, and we're mostly going to be talking, bringing a competitive mindset to Age of Sigmar. Uh, if you've met Aiden or if you've played Warhammer 40k against myself, you know that we like to bring the heat. We like to play at some of the highest levels. And uh, one of the things we really want to talk about today is whether or not that is applicable to Age of Sigmar. If it is, how it is applicable and whether or not Age of Sigmar is that competitive game we wish 40k was. Bit of an inside joke there. Before we get in, into any of that, I'd really like to chat about uh, Aiden's recent weekend at the Warhammer 40k Canadian Western Championships, where he, along with three other members of Trident Wargaming, were down there rolling dice, playing games. So, can you tell me a little bit about uh, that? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, so we played at a, a team event this weekend in Saskatoon. Um, it followed the WTC format, but it was very um, unorthodox, I guess, because instead of having eight players, as WTC normally does, or, you know, your three or five player setup, we had a four player setup. Um, and so we went into that as a team, not really understanding how the draft was going to look. Um, obviously, having an even number, it's, it gets pretty complicated. Um, and there was a surprising amount of depth to it. We didn't. We went into it kind of expecting, oh, it's everything's going to be random, everything's a coin flip. Uh, but we could, if we knew, uh, like engineer about fifty percent of our matchups going into it. Um, and we started to take advantage of that as the tournament went on, uh, which led to you know more success. Um, otherwise, it was a great uh, tournament. Com the competition's incredible. Um, it felt like their like average competitive player were our like tippy top here in Edmonton. Uh, so really good practice for a lot of us on the team. Uh, we finished fifth, which is, I, I think, respectable, um, considering. Um, and, and the format itself, like when you get sit down for the game, wild. Um, the terrain, there was more terrain on the board than there wasn't, um, which informed a lot of uh, other people's list building decisions. We didn't know that going into it. We just happened to have a couple players. Like I was on Thousand Suns, um, Ryan was on uh, Votan, which helped to make a lot of that easy. Uh, we, there weren't really uh, lines of sight outside of like 18 inches. So having that kind of more short range concentrated firepower, like via Eldar, via T-Suns, ended up uh, finding a lot of success. And, and we learned a lot about um, the format itself. Um, and I think a lot of what we want to talk about today with Age of Sigmar, uh, we can kind of, or I personally can draw from this event because it was so different than what I've been used to in, in not only 10th edition, but 9th edition. Um, and how we can like make list building choices and make decisions in game uh, based on the, the fundamental game that we're playing and not just uh, the rules themselves. Now, do you think at these Western Canadian 40k championships, like every single player had list choices that were specific to the missions? Like how, how much effort was placed into like list building because they know that oh, this mission might come up, this objective might come up, this deployment might come up, and I need X unit in here. Well, I'll tell you, so the missions themselves were very, very, very simple. Uh, I think three of them were Chilling Rain, which is just nothing's going on, and two of them, I think, were whatever the one is where you split the center um, objective, so you have six objectives instead of five. Um, very simple. The biggest thing that we did notice, um, and I ran into this in my second round, was... Um, because it's a four-player format, lists were built just to be like, hey, we're going to throw you at whatever the scariest player is or whatever the scariest list is. Um, and you're just you're just going to try to get as many points as possible, just hit even. 
you don't need to win you're never going to win right like the list that i played into was a necrons list that focused on big lich guard bricks um and just not letting you score points but simultaneously they're never getting a 90 30 or like in in wt scoring they're never getting a 20 0. um it's always going to be like a 10 11 you know 12 8 if they're if they're lucky but that's the point because that means that the rest of their players can get paired up into uh favorable matchups um and they don't have to worry about it right they're kind of equalizing the board for themselves so that kind of decision making in lists led to success at the top three teams in my opinion uh they came second the one that we played against um where you know their necrons went into my t-sons they weren't able to kill me i wasn't able to kill them therefore i wasn't able to pull enough points to get our, our team to win um but yeah as far as the mission themselves i don't think a lot of people given that this is the first western uh canadian team championships um, i don't think a lot of players knew to bring that very uh short concentrated uh like firepower um it was kind of all over the place which i think is good for you know as a community to learn uh the format but it's really yeah. interesting because uh, when we look at like wtc or europe meta versus uh like american meta or north american it's been different it's been different for years and i think part of that is because of the density that they have for terrain you kind of have to change the way that you think about the board with the models that you bring and having like crazy long range firepower like fire prisms might not get you the effect you need on a board like that. But like old rules like the old school uh, 40k Eldar battle focus would be incredible. Which makes you think like yeah, uh, uh, with those redeploy movements of Eldar or other armies might be very powerful. Incredibly. I was unable, I played into Eldar uh, in round three and I was unable to do anything because Phantasm represented such a, such a, powerful powerful tool um with like you know very very particular lines of sight so now if you were to go into it again do you think that if you change the way you think about the board you change the way you think about the mission and you design for it you'd be more successful i think that um i almost on accident brought a really good list for this because i'm playing the uh the terminator brick yeah. you funnel all your points into the terminator brick you kill something you find that line of sight um, and in a lot of ways, that worked for me. I think that if I brought like a more rubric spam version, um, it would work, but it wouldn't get me the 20 O's that I ended up getting. Um, it would have just, like the Necron player just equalized, right? Uh, versus like, I think Ryan's list where he brought a lot of Sagittars, like transports, right? Those ended up being very bad in this format. So if we were to go back and maybe take away the Sagittars, turned it into another Terminator brick unit, um, that's incredible, right? Um, so yeah, I think I think for uh, you know our other teammates, I think next year we might be bringing something a little different. But um, I think personally, I just got lucky um, with what I brought. <laughs> bringing those thousand cents—that's awesome. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'd like to apply that sort of theory, that sort of thinking, those sort of ideas into playing Age of Sigmar at a competitive level. I know that it's played um, internationally at a competitive level with like they have a very well represented world scene which stems from the old days of warhammer fantasy where it was the most competitive war game more so than 40k at the time uh it did go into ninth age and the the company well it's not really a company it's more like an organization that uh the crowd organization that has made ninth age they have kept that extreme level of competitiveness and they've actually applied that right into their base rule set which for some people is fundamentally excellent because the game is insanely balanced and tweaked but for some people they're like well there's no independent characters this game is boring <laughs> Which there is a, like, does unbalance make more fun? That's a whole other different discussion. Um, but I want to talk about some of the uh, 
the the competitive aspects about taking some of the ideas we have from 40k and and, and apply that to age of sigmar uh, i think first on the docket is uh, identifying unit power level and scaling those units in count so when we apply that in warhammer 40k you're talking about those thousand sun uh terminator bricks how many can you have it is a fantastic unit it takes a lot of points you want one in your army it's one of the best units in the game you want two do you want three uh, we had a we had a, the other thousand sons player that came to the event ended up bringing two uh and as a result right he didn't have the uh the points to spend on support so it ended up not doing as great because you're just you're a five inch walking at your opponent you have no support to make you uh more effective you're just another terminator blob right uh with the with the advantage of getting to double move uh that's that's what it was um in and in 40k i think we are incentivized to kind of classify units in one of two broad categories and then subcategorizing from there like we have things that don't die or things that do damage and those things we take as maximum unit size um and always have right um we're never taking a five man when we can take a 10 man if the goal of the five or if goal of the the unit is to is to kill things right and simultaneously like the death knights or whatever right we don't want them to uh to get blown up uh versus like you know we're taking minimum unit size when we're trying to actually play the game um and there isn't a lot of ambiguity when you're looking at a data sheet for what that unit should uh be like it, it's almost always like you're never taking i don't think you can but you're never taking a five-man terminator brick because like um if you could it's never going to fulfill the job that i can tell that to the custodies players right now right well right that's what i'm saying right like they're they've been hampered and they're not able to take like the the strongest version of a custodian guard brick so the faction's suffering for it they've they become really expensive utility units um without the damage output um fight phase to fight phase right so now in age of sigmar we have something called the reinforce mechanic and for those of you who are new to age of sigmar or getting into it or uh, are curious about it one of the mechanics is um so for 40k which many of our listeners are aware of uh historically you could have bought things model by model you had to buy a minimum of, of a certain amount and then from there you could apply up to a maximum so if you wanted to take sisters of battle you could start in five but then you could play up to ten the newest edition of 40k changed that where they essentially sold uh whatever was in the box is what your data sheet is and then like with very rare exceptions of you being able to extend that data sheet um in fact i can't really think of any and in some cases them not being like uh actually no putting two boxes together is not allowed uh, so sometimes it is so they've been kind of specific about that uh age of sigmar did it first and i think they did it best they have a mechanic called reinforce where you can take any data sheet in the game and a data sheet pretty much comes as a box of models except it's called a war scroll um and you can double up on the amount of models in it you can just add another data sheet to it it becomes a unit that's twice the size um and an army can only do that up to three times now units that are battle lines so like your very core troops this would have been the old troops sub uh list building archetype in warhammer 40k you can do this you can do up to three times you can reinforce them twice um yeah you can reinforce them twice but you're only allowed to do three reinforcements in the game so for example playing lumineth i have lumineth wardens they're like these spear boys i'm allowed to reinforce them normally they're a 10-man block i can pump them up to 20 or i can pump them up to 30. however there is the grand restriction that you can only reinforce something three times so it's four as a heads up it's uh you have four points at 2000 four points 2000 okay depends on how big the game is um 
how does that change how you balance a list in Age of Sigmar? Because, like, for example, uh, I have a unit of blade, blade Lords, and they come base in five. They have two wounds each, and they slap in combat. I think uh, a five-man unit doesn't actually have the offensive power to kill most of the things at once, so I want to reinforce it. And you can make it battle lines, you can actually do it once. I like, I like it at the ten-man squad. Is it worth reinforcing it again? How do I know if 10-man or 15-man is the right size here? So when you talk Age of Sigmar, how do we identify like a unit power level? How many times do we want to reinforce that? And just because something is good, does that mean we want more of it? I think it depends on the unit. Uh, do, do Blade Lords have an ability to fight first or do they have any combat tricks? Um, kind of. They Well, like Lumineth always get to fight twice, right? I'm going to fight twice before you fight once. Uh, but Blade Lords have a specific trick in that they can uh, choose to have extra attacks. Or on a 2-up, they just automatically do a mortal. Right. Okay. So, I think I think the best example... there There's two. I think best example of like what this looks like in-game is uh, Skeletons, right? And, and Moon Clan uh, Stabas. Um, with Skeletons, I found that a 10-man axe, it's very cheap. It's 110 points, I believe. It can act as a screening unit, it can act as a zoning unit, it can act as a hangout in that corner, right? Go grab that objective and walk off. And that's the base war goal for skeletons, 10-man. That's the base. How um, many 10-man units of skeletons do you want in your army? It depends, because if you... A lot of times you're taking that 10-man because it happens to be the cheapest battle line you can take to go just do whatever. Score right? objective, screen opponent, do something. Right. And now, that being said, a lot of lists end up taking that to 30 spending 330 points in the skeletons for those people who don't know skeletons have an interesting mechanic where at the start of every combat phase you count the amount of ones that are dead you roll a dice for each on a four plus they come back so they're incredibly hard to kill if 15 of them are dead right um like just by ratio but if you have 10 of them they might get picked up in one combat phase and that's nothing so they become almost two units depending on how you reinforce them either they're a large uh, damage uh, soak, like a tank, that walks up the middle of the board, presents a threat that your opponent's never going to be able to deal with, and that's one way to play them. Or you take three, one, whatever, ten men's, and then they become like utility units. Um, we don't see that in 40k, or like very, very rarely. Um, units, generally speaking, are um, either damage units or they're not. It's just what it is, right? The other thing with skeletons, I should probably mention, is if the skeletons have more models than whatever it's attacking, they get an additional rend. So there's almost like a written-in... Um, <laughs> Take thing 30. To hey, it gets a little stronger if you're taking it in bigger numbers. Um, so if you take I, I believe, one squad of 30 skeletons, do you ever want a second squad of 30 skeletons? You might, um, but you never, you can never do a third. So it becomes... Right, and that kind of informs on list building a little bit more because... What happens if I want to build a list that's structured around these two 30-man skeleton blocks, um, but all my other options are maybe bad without reinforcing them? Well, right. that's where we start moving into monsters and heroes and more interesting list-building choices because of the restriction of reinforcement points. So this is back to we, that Terminator brick. You, you want one block, but if you mm -hmm. take two blocks, we're losing the support pieces that make that one block work or our ability to be in elsewhere on the board. Exactly, except it's written into the rules versus a judgment call we have to make, right? The problem with 40k is, well, what happens if it 
what happens if the unit is both self-sufficient and you can take it at its maximum size and you can play as many as possible in 40k right um there are a lot of examples of this uh we have like 10th uh custodians were like at the start of 10th or whatever you could theoretically run as many as you wanted to um it, it allows for a little bit more of degenerative list building if yeah. something is broken there's no check there's no control valve to uh, you abusing a system like that, but it also just leads to less interesting, uh, like list building decisions, right? Would the reserve more... mechanic work in 40k? Pardon? Would the reserve mechanic that Age of Sigmar has work for 40k? I don't think so. Uh, not until like 11th edition, because we don't like it. Like it wouldn't hurt, but it, it it's not like units aren't written for, um, right? For both minimum unit size and maximum unit size, they're very clearly written for one or the other. Gotcha. Like, either you want 10 Terminators. I don't think there's ever a point when you want 5. Uh, and if I look at, like, um, I don't know, Battle Sisters, I don't think I ever want more than 10. I know that you used to be able to take 20. I don't know that having 10 more Bolters is going to be a good thing. Other than, I guess, just, you know, chalking up the board. And I don't know if you would want, uh, like, Termagants in, in small units. So that is an interesting mechanic. Uh, you also mentioned Moonclan Stabas. What's a Moonclan yeah, Stabba and why, why does that matter? So let me pull up their thing here. Um... So I don't know it off the top of my head like I do skeletons. As you pull that so. up, I'm going to talk about uh, one of my favorite Lumineth units is the um, Hurricane Wind Charger. It's actually one of the units that really got me into Lumineth. Uh, I looked at it and I'm like, oh man, those guys are fucking weird. I, I want to play them. And they're essentially like these archers that ride on skeletons. Uh, and I've been including one off in my list. I have played at uh, two Age of Sigmar tournaments. I'm about 15 games in Age of Sigmar. I went into one tournament like totally raw, uh, you know, playing like one or two games and I'm like, I'm going to fuck shit up. I ended up going 2-1 and one in that tournament. And one of the biggest successes in both that and the next tournament was this one unit of uh, Hurricane Wind Chargers. Now, Hurricane Wind Chargers are cavalry, so they get about a move of 14, but they're archers, and they got two shots each. So they get about 10 shots. I think the sergeant gets an extra one. Uh, however, they're only at 12-inch range. They hit on threes, they wound on threes. I think they're minus one. They do one damage. However, their other mechanic that they have is that in the fight phase... When they pile in, they get to pile in an extra three inches, and they can go in any direction they want. So one of the unique things they can do is they can always charge, and then if you don't want them to fight, you just pull them out, and your opponent essentially will not get to fight with an activation. It gets more complex, because if you charge with them, and then another combat, and then you have other combats going on, your opponent has to think whether or not they want to fight those gazelles. Because if they don't, they're never going to get the chance, and then they're going to get move-blocked, and, and never be able to, to deal with that. Um, I had a game, I ended up losing because of Battle Ready, but it was against Seraphon. Uh, no, it was against Corn Corn Demons. And uh, he had some some unit that was like better at combat than the Gazelles. And uh, there was like three turns of combat where he kept charging them, and the Gazelles kept falling back out so that they couldn't get in combat, and then move blocking. And so he could never push onto my objective, he could never take it from me, I scored that objective so many times, and it ended up being a really, really good addition to the list. Here's the thing. Reinforcing that unit would be useless. I do not need 10 gazelles. Uh, and there is a maximum amount of these hurricane wind chargers that I want in the list. Except for in a certain sub-faction where all of a sudden they become battle line and they get, I think, plus one to wound in that sub-faction, which entirely changes that army where you would want as many of these gazelles as possible. But uh, for its function, you, you really only ever want, I think, one maybe two units and in most Lumineth armies if you go up to three it loses its effectiveness because they're not really that fighty 
So what are they going to do? Threaten a fight for someone else? Well, at a certain point, it's only so useful. Moonclan status. Uh, yeah, so Moonclan status, their main gimmick is that they can contest objectives from 9 inches away instead of 6, provided that they have at least 20 models in the unit. The baseline is 20. Um, so the question becomes, okay, well, I have this cheap battle line unit, right? It is 120 points. 120 so points for 20 models. They must have like a 6-up or a 5-up save. Yeah, they're they're easy to kill, um, which kind of comes into reinforcing them. If you have a 20-man and your opponent in their hero phase arcane bolts you, picks up one, it loses its ability, right? Whereas if you have, you know, you reinforce it up to 60, right? You're putting all those points into that. You're putting 360 into it. Hitting that 20 number is a lot more difficult, right? Especially when you can start bringing them back and it's a whole thing. Not to mention uh, Gloom Spite's ability to bring back a unit at half strength after it's died, a la like, like Soul Blight, right? If you're bringing back a unit with 30 models, again, it, it's, it can do its effect, right? Whereas like a 10-man coming back can't. So you're trading off, investing these points into something that is going to stay in one area, but you're getting more benefits for doing so right it becomes that like that metagame of like like do i want a, three of these spread out or do i want three of these that are more effective at the thing that they're doing um consolidated right um and that that's we see that a lot um moon clan stabas skeletons there's they're all over the place um in age of sigmar in battle line um but as well like we see it um we see it elsewhere in um in non-battle line units right like to take the skeleton example we have grave guard right who are um, not Just on paper. More killy skeletons, essentially. Right. Uh, that, you know, they, they're probably drawing because they're your main hammer. They're one of the only things that do damage in Soul Blight. They're bringing your, uh, or tempting your reinforcement points towards them. Uh, just to do more damage. So that becomes another list building decision of, okay, well, do I want to unlock the abilities of the models that I, that I need to like score points? Or do I want to allocate that more towards damage, right? The reinforcement system makes you choose. Whereas in 40k, if such, war scrolls were, were carried over right um you would just make the you'd make the easy decision you'd say okay well i'm gonna put this many points into my damage i'm gonna put as many points as i can in my utility mm -hmm. um and you're not forced to make a list building decision right do you think uh like yes or no is age of sigmar list building better than 40k absolutely yeah 100 percent uh it's not even close i i think it, we'll get into it in a little bit but i think that it goes so much grander uh than just choices for unit sizes um this is just one cog in the machine of like why every single decision uh, and every consideration you're making when your list building is important versus 40k which tends to be what's my game plan how in what quantity do i have to take what units to achieve that game plan a lot of the times that's damage right Eldar, well, in, right. in Eldar right now, I was actually talking, uh, the most successful list is playing a block of Wraith Guard that's, like, really hard to kill, an Avatar that's really hard to kill, and, yeah. th and then building around that. So sometimes it's, yeah. like, also building stuff that can't be killed. And I think Necrons do something similar. Necrons do exactly that, right? You have, like, your, your backline shooting just to deal with the stuff that can deal with your Necron blocks. Um, like, Eldar probably does the same, right? You're taking these damage units to deal with the things that deal with your Wraith Guard. But at the end of the day, you're protecting Wraith Guard, you're winning the game, right? So it's either all out on damage, you have a game plan, but there's no uh, limitations. Yeah. So you don't have to make any considerations beyond what's the most effective way to do this. In AOS, we have to consider triumphs. Haha, ha, they never matter. Um, you have to consider 
Um, Though there are some lists that uh, they they dick themselves down about ninety points so that they can get a triumph. Like they're, they're they fundamentally get, super right? important. Yeah, there's specific archetypes that absolutely make it work, but for every list, priority is important, right? And that's the big thing is I might have to take a substandard unit in order to fit it into a one drop, right? Like I, I just might have to. Um, that's what it is. I might have to go wider or I might want to go more dense on my damage because I need enough units um, to fit in a particular uh, detachment, right? Or uh, battalion. Um and to that, right, like this is going to eventually, you know, roll into the double turn argument, but your list building determines how the rules of a lot of these missions are going to turn out. Like, and 40k doesn't have that. When you make a decision in list building, it will eventually come back in the game, right? In, in the way the rules play out, in the way that you score points beyond just like your secondaries. I wonder if super... uh, in 40k... Uh, because we're so early in that edition, if uh, like, because what they're doing is they're essentially releasing subfactions uh, with specific caveats on these benefits go to these units, and if we'll have like a level of complex the later in 40k where you can kind of mix and match that in order to build a more complex list. Um, I'm also worried that that might not be the case because historically 40k hasn't really done that, and where you do take some units for mission play and some units for killing, um, it doesn't have the same quantifiers that other systems have. I know that you've never played Infinity, but Infinity, you have, likewise, a certain amount of points. Usually the competitive scene plays at 300 points. And, like, point levels are, like, whatever. That's just, like, an arbitrary number of, like, these are how many points we can take for models. But in addition to that, they have something called support weapon cost, and you have six of them. And depending on your special weapons, all your special weapons cost support weapons cost. So you can't just spam, oh, this is the best fucking gun in the game, I'm taking 20 of them. In Infinity, you can take, like, three, maybe four, depending on what you're doing. Uh, because there's another qualifier. So in Age of Sigmar, we have that in reinforcement points. Uh, we have that in battle line. But like you mentioned, we also have that in the structure of detachments. Because like you said, priority matters. Deciding who goes first or who goes second is very important. There are ways to mitigate that. If you're playing a much heavier shooting list, uh, sometimes going first can be good for you. And people don't want to give you that opportunity because they need to get their defenses up. And so you can kind of play around with that. Um one of the biggest things, though, in, in all of these is definitely sub-faction builds. Uh, so, like, <laughs> one of the questions in list building is how do I identify, um, like, how much uh, of a unit I want? How does that scale in reinforcements? How is that replicatable throughout a list with also having the support pieces? And the second part is that how do sub-factions change that? Soulblight's very interesting, as, as you are a, uh, a newer, recently risen Soulblight general. Uh, one of the things you discovered, especially on the internet, is how powerful they were and how powerful zombies are, right? Yeah. There are sub-factions that make them a little bit better. Uh, people want to have the 40-man zombie bricks, but what if a sub-faction changes that? Because you're not playing the zombie sub-faction. And even if 40-man zombies are some of the most official, efficient things at killing things because they do mortals when they die, do you want two of those? Do we want three of those? Like, how many? how much of a good thing is a good thing? Uh, even if sometimes that sub-faction rule for it is centered on that. How do you differentiate between this is what I need to build a list, this is uh, what I need to do in action, this is what I'm going to kill? Um, <laughs> that's really complicated in Age of Sigmar. Yeah, it absolutely gets complicated. We uh, Like the easy answer, maybe three or four months ago before we jumped in, was, well, you take as many zombies as possible. But that's for a separate issue. Um, now that we have... Points that reflect probably the power of, of soul blight units. Um, 
you can't just take everything with zombie, you know, in an ability and and throw it into a list and call it a day. Uh, we have to make important decisions based on what the sub faction actually gives you, right? Verkos is the um, is the the zombie relevant sub faction for Soulblight, and the main benefit uh, there's two, I guess, is you get a three inch move in your hero phase for all your zombies uh, around your general. It's pretty important. They move four inches, so giving them a chargeable seven inches is pretty good. So for um, any listeners and, or watchers out there, one of the fundamental differences of Age of Sigmar is that most stuff doesn't just move six. There is a lot of stuff that moves four. There is a lot of stuff that moves five. Like six is not necessarily your average movement. And uh, the game is much more movement focused. So getting that is important. And the second thing I should mention is that most army books have uh, like six or more sub factions. And there are special regiments of renown, which are like separate detachments that are sub factions, but they're much more restrictive. Um, for example, Soulblight, I think, has six different sub-factions, and each of the sub-factions gives you a different bonus. So Aiden is talking about how Verkos is going to give some bonuses to zombies. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, this would be this would be a relic. Um, but as well, you have heroic actions, which are things you do in the hero phase. Um, you get to do once one a turn, and one of them is you pick a Deadwalker unit, you add D3 of zombies, dire wolves, whatever, to that unit, and it can go above the unit maximum, right? There's some interesting rules interactions with this that make this a very powerful ability, uh, but I won't get into those. What's more important is the two things are you get a 40-something percent increase in, in movement on your uh, zombies, as well as a um, the ability to just make more of them, right? However, uh, if that does raise the question of like, well, how many zombies are you going to end up taking? If you if you go all in on zombies, and let's say you're you're looking at your sub faction, you're like, hey, okay, fantastic. You take you know Gorslav or, or someone who cares about zombies. You're like, all right, I got all this, and then you play against a ranged army. You you're just going to lose because you don't have the the reach, and a lot of your abilities don't function uh, against a ranged army like like Caradron. So, be, just because you have uh, you know a themed sub faction doesn't mean you don't have to make uh, more interesting and more uh, broad, I guess, list building decisions uh, in order to make what makes your sub-faction work, work. Okay, so um, Vercos, uh, zombies, they come normally in what, 10 or 20? 20, 20, right? 20, 20 base, yeah. Okay, most people are going to reinforce them to once, which is going to give you to 40. Mm -hmm. yep. You get and all the benefits might... from that. 40 zombies are good. Do you ever want to spam that? Do you want two units of 40? Do you want three units of 40? Do you want 40 units of 40? What's the magic number and how do you know? Basically, you just have to look at what you're lacking. So if, you, um, if you're looking at you know, a particular general's handbook and you say, hey, okay, I'm getting some feedback. Off you. Oh, okay, I'll mute. All right, no worries. Um, just because you know, when you're taking zombies, you're taking 40 zombies, that costs you 300. You're taking a corpse car with that, that's 80. You're taking maybe another 20 man, you're taking a necromancer, it gets up there. But it hits a point where you're running out of things to do the mission. You're running out of things to actually deal damage because zombies are very much like dictated by your opponent on whether or not they function. Um, and the rest of your army becomes finding a way to prevent your, your opponent's choice. It's kind of like what you were saying with the with the wind chargers, right? Like you could spam as many wind chargers as you want, right? And that would make that would make your opponent's combat phase really weird um, because suddenly they have to worry not about one unit potentially complicating things but like four or five the problem is you can limit your opponent's decisions but if you have nothing to limit them to if that makes sense uh it, it's not doing anything 
So what you have to identify is, okay, here are the missions. How do I play these? What job does do zombies fulfill? Um, and how can I um, optimize each different section of, of my game plan? Um, what it used to be was you just take as many zombies as possible. And that's because kind of akin to what we see in, in traditional 40k sub-factions, right? Where they're either yeah. you, you max everything out on damage because you're going to blow them up uh, leaf blower style, or you're going to make it so you have no good target and they're not going to be able to kill you. Mm -hmm. It's That's what it was. I, uh, I, I was speaking earlier about... Um, I'm feedbacking again. Uh, sorry. Uh, about uh, Admac and 8th edition, the, the two main uh, factions were Mars for damage, you get your rerolls. Um, and then Stygies, which just gave you old school loan op, right? You couldn't be shot outside. I think it was 18. Um, and this is, these are wildly different play styles, right? Um, or like theoretically should be, where one is towards utility. You're trying to actually play the game. You're trying to keep your opponent from making decisions. And one is, well, I want to blast you off the board as fast as possible. That doesn't exist in AOS. We, we can't make a call like that and, uh, and go head first because there are checks and balances in the game that prevent us from doing that. The double turn being one of them. So the double turn is a good thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think it is as well, but only because there are so many aspects of the game that build towards it. Um I think so too. One of the things I like best about the subfactions within a lot of the armies is that there it's almost like having six different armies. In, in, in any one of these. Like, if you want to play Soulblight, there are there is not one correct way to play Soulblight. There are many. If you want to play Lumineth, there is not one correct one. There are many. And some of them are wildly different. Like, the one that makes one specific unit battle line, the Wind Chargers, all of a sudden you go from wanting one unit of Wind Chargers to, like, I I, I don't know, because they're they're really good. I don't have enough Wind Chargers to play that, but I'm curious. Uh, the, list, yeah. There's another list that gives you... Um, you get to ignore Rend 1 and 2, uh, and there's like it stacks a little bit with uh, certain other rules, and all of a sudden you have some two up or three up save guys that they're 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 rolling their two ups and three ups, and in Age of Sigmar that's very powerful because the way the Ren system works is there isn't that. There's a lot of Ren one, there's a lot of Ren zero, Ren two is very rare, Ren three is exceptionally rare, and I've barely ever seen Ren four if at all. Um, how do you think that? Uh, how do you think that plays into? like the the hidden sub faction of uh like tech list right so one of the things i guess about age of sigmar is that if we have um like centerpiece themed models they absolutely can change uh like how an army functions uh, you can play um there is uh two different popular lumineth builds right now one is called Yemetrica, where they get to ignore some rend on some of their stone based units and another one is zytrek where everyone gets plus one to cast and uh, Teclas can be played in both, and he often is, but all of a sudden, if we put 1,000, you know, 800-ish plus your spell portal points into a unit, that is an entirely different army than without it. And so it changes uh, how you have to list build, because you have to list build around that unit. Uh, it changes um, how you're going to function for the mission. Uh, historically, playing 40k and Age of Sigmar, when I look at any given list, I ask myself, what, what sub-faction is going to give me the best chances at winning in my local meta? Because I think that has more of an impact than um, like a worldwide meta. And once I make my decision on what I'm going to play, I start off with, like, what are some must-includes? And if I want to play Teclas, either I start, I'm playing Teclas, or I'm not playing Teclas. Uh, and if I'm playing Teclas, then it has to be like, okay, Teclas is not going to be holding objectives. What's going to be holding objectives? 
And I think whether I'm playing tactics or not, that's one of the first things I start with. How am I going to hold objectives? How am I going to score points? Uh, after I decide on one or two units, I ask myself, uh, and this is true in both 40k and Age of Sigmar, how am I going to score mission secondaries? So in 40k right now, that's drawing cards. You need extreme mobility and high reactivity. In uh, Age of Sigmar, there is uh, specific ones that you can choose. And all of the like general ones are army positional. So you still need mobility and reactivity. Um, and the specific army ones are much more specific. And in that case, it actually forces me to build certain things. One of the ones in Lumineth is it requires you to have up to two endless spells on the board. So if I want to be able to score that one consistently, and my opponent's normally going to want to score that, I actually need to buy more than two endless spells. You probably want three, so that you can like bait one out, challenge some other spells, and then make sure you're going to get two out for sure. So that that's kind of how I ended up doing that. Uh, you know, people think Teclis is 780 points. He's not. He's 780 points plus a spell portal, which is 80 points. And then he's not just 780 points plus 80 points for a spell portal. You also need a unit that's going to bodyguard him so that no one's going to be able to get to him. So now we're looking at 1,000 points. And then before you know it, you realize you're looking at 1,500 points in order for this list to function. And then you're looking at like 1,800 points because you have these things that are building for your secondaries. I mean, right. uh, you tried experimenting not playing a Nagash build, as most Soul Blades don't. You tried playing some of the other heroes. Uh, yeah. But then you also tried playing Nagash. How did it work for you? How did it change up your individual sub-sub-faction? So the way that I viewed, or have come to view Nagash, is that he's not really a model, uh, which is kind of weird to say, but he's more like a 900-point index that you buy, um, where you don't care how much damage he does. He probably, like, everything considered, he probably does the damage worth of, like, a 250-point model, right? Uh, like, you know, a quarter his, his junior... Um, but so that's you're paying a thousand points for the damage output of 250 points. Right. And this this kind of factors into the fact that this game is not a damage game. Um, nothing would work if it was. Uh, we there's no such thing as blowing your opponent up turn one. And if you can accomplish that, you can't do it consistently. There's no way to. You got to tell uh, that to both the Caradron Overlords and Marathi and the Bow Snakes. Yeah, you say, but that's the thing, right? Is you take something like turn one Gloomspite, you take turn one Marathi that are going to shoot you down a bunch. Um, we've seen it historically where it's been pretty bad with like Sentinels and stuff. But regarding or disregarding outliers, um, the game is not a damage game because maybe Marathi or Bow Snakes might blow you up turn like one uh, one game or whatever. But the next game, what happens if Marathi and Bow Snakes get double turned and they have fragile units that can't actually play the game after they get double turned? Well, Definitely. I played against Marathi and the Bow Snakes at a recent tournament. He actually played against Teclas Lumineth twice, which was kind of funny because it was pretty rare. And in the first game, he did get the first turn, and he blew up the opponent's Teclas. Um, when I played against him, I knew that I was going to go first because I built my list to be a one-drop. And I carefully positioned that I knew I was going to go first, and I was going to tie up the Bow Snakes because they can't shoot out of combat if they get there. So he either had the choice of going deploying very far back, where the Bow Snakes are not going to get into the game, or getting blown up in the turn one and he chose wrong so even in sometimes when we have these sub factions that can do big things on turn one and i guess it's giving you a hard time about the ko and the the most snakes things there is counterplay to it in list building yeah there there has to be uh because otherwise you know it would just be marathi um i i think that nagash is a very expensive piece of faction terrain that gives you a ton of benefits right uh, for those of you who don't know we have 
as Soul Blade players, we have two big things. One is when a unit dies, we can bring back uh, a replacement unit with half of its models. Um, and as well, we have the ability to heal or, or restore uh, units within heroes by, I believe it's three, uh, three or four uh, models in each unit or three or four wounds worth, right? And you can do that multiple times. What Agash does is he just lets you do that twice uh, for both of those. Um, there are different conditions around how either of them work, but it amplifies the other 1,100 points you have with those rules on top of unlocking your entire, like eight casts of your entire book. Um, and so what he, what he really gives you is, here's your book, here's a bunch of extra stuff you can do. You can do any and all of this, uh, and you don't have to worry about leaving it down to chance. The caveat being, you're getting no damage and 900 your points are locked up in one unit so you have to be very careful about the rest of your list building in order to make it work that plus said, your spell portal plus your screening plus... plus your spell portal yeah so you have a lot that you have to do um and at the end of the day like i don't do damage right i, I think with this list i'm sitting at a probably 75 or an 80 right now and percent win rate and um I don't kill units. I think my last game I played was against Ideneth, and I killed two units, I think, and one of them was on accident. Like it's just not how it, it's just not how it uh, is supposed to play. Um, and I think to a certain degree, Techless is similar. Um, you have all of these, like you have a lot more damage-based spells, but theoretically, you could piece out Techless and get way more damage. But that's not what it's about. It's about giving yourself more options in the game to play the mission. And whether that's targeted mortal wound bombs or whether that's like defensive buffs, the end result's the same. You're presenting a larger utility threat on the board rather than a larger damage threat. That's so, why I really like the, uh, the Ash. I think uh, to some extent, any of these competitive war games, whether we're talking Warhammer Fantasy, Ninth Age, Warhammer 40k, um, Age of Sigmar, which I would call a competitive war game, uh, Infinity it can't just be all about damage. And if your game is only about doing damage, that's not an interesting game because then that we have systems where, well, whoever goes first wins. So there needs to be some sort of modifier or check versus um, who's doing damage, who's doing like utility, uh, what's more important, is there a mix important? And that works really well when we talk about like the double turn. Uh, Nagash, if he gets a double turn, is that devastating? If I get a double turn, uh, most of the time, I'm giving my opponent the double turn, right? For those of you who don't know, the priority roll uh, for the first turn, it's determined on who has uh, less drops, so whoever deploys last. Um, but after that, it's a roll-off. So you could get double turned two or three times, right? Uh, and you could double turn your opponent two or three times, right? Eventually, it'll average out. Uh, but the, the thing with that is... Just because if I go into a gate or if I go into the the system and I play a thousand games and my priority role is like 50% wins and losses, right? If I'm running a three drop army, um, that doesn't mean that I'm going to benefit from the priority role 50% of the time because I have to make a decision as to whether or not I'm going to take the, the first turn of the battle round or give it, which you have the option of doing. Same with the first battle round. Oftentimes especially in this GHB, you want to go second. You have so many benefits, whether it's um, an extra cast, which you know is equivalent to saying, hey, I want to give something a plus one or a free all of defense, right? That's what Mystic Shield is. You get, you get that for free. Or whether or not you're dictating which objectives 
give you more points, right? That's what the second player gets to do. Or um, you're getting extra, um, what's it? Uh, you're getting extra, help me out here, Arthur. The Andor and Locust stuff. Andor and, right, that stuff. Um, you just get so many more benefits for... More primal dice in the bank. Yes, um, more command points. Um, there, you get more resources, right? And so it becomes a question of, hey, am I? do I want the damage turn or do I want the utility turn? And oftentimes, especially because I'm not a damage army, you just take the utility turn because you're saying, okay, you're going to chew this much more into me, but because I'm built not to care about that, you might kill an extra 10 zombies, but at the end of the day, that zombie unit's still going to be there and I'm going to have more resources to push it and get me more points because at the end of the day, you just care about winning the game. You don't care about how much damage you did, how much damage you received. There's exceptions to this. Again, if we're playing against something like Marathi, you probably don't want to give them the double turn uh, unless you know it's going to be a good thing. But you can your ability to to decide and, and, and understand when you should take the second and first turn is, in my opinion, the most important skill to learn coming from 40k. And it makes it more complex when you look at some of the scoring because objectives are scored at the end of your turn. Yeah. Uh, and that's player turn. So, like, the good secondaries in 40k for some time have been the ones you get to score on your player turn because you have agency. In Age of Sigmar, all the secondaries are scored at the end of the turn and the primary is scored at the end of your turn. Uh, also, the grand strategy is scored at the end of turn 5. So, in many cases, it is better, if you can, to go second. However, going second in any of these games creates a system where someone gets to do damage to you first, limiting your ability to do damage back. And if your game is only based on damage, that creates a system of whoever strikes first wins, right? That first turn argument. Which is why it could never work in 40k, because doing damage twice or getting to, to shoot or fight twice is uh, unbelievably strong. You would win the game outright 90% of the time if that was a system, uh, but it it's not the same in AOS. And a lot of people will say, hey, well, doesn't this, you know, lead to randomness, right? I have less impact as a player because I could just lose my priority role, right? Or make the wrong call even if I win it. Um, but the data doesn't really show that. I think last uh, last edition, Richard Siegler, right, who I think a lot of people believe are among the top three best players in the world, was walking around uh, GTs with maybe a 71, 72% win rate. Um, whereas we have, what's his name? Gavin, um, the age Gavin of Sigmar Greiger. player who has like a hundred percent or like a 90, 90% yeah. win rate. Gavin Greiger's the, the worldwide, he's the best player. He's been a very, very, you know, top ranking player for a few seasons. So this isn't an outlier. Um, but he's 30 and 0 over, um, over his last six GTs or rather his best performing GTs the last 12 months. And that's unheard of in 40 K. Right. And so if you have. If you have a player that is consistently pumping out 100% win rates and he's doing it with different armies, right? How how can we infer that uh, the game is decided randomly off that, right? So here's you the ultimate at... thesis. The double turn is a good mechanic because Age of Sigmar is a competitively built war game from the ground up. But it's only a good mechanic because it is built from the ground up. Because the list building decisions, like reinforcements, like sub-factions, um, the sub-list building decisions, like your secondary scoring, and like the sub-sub-sub-list build decisions, like choosing whether or not you're going to have tech lists or something else, dramatically change the entire game. Because you're not just building for damage, you also have to build for utility. 
and the game forces you to do that. It really does. So if you have a game where you don't have, where you're spending a thousand points to get 250 points worth of damage, because the utility is more valuable, and utility can be like things like move blocking or getting extra movement or just um, slowing your opponent's movement, uh, that makes it a situation where you can always plan during the end of your turn to look at it and be like, okay, whether or not I get the double turn or someone gets the double turn on me next. I'm going to be okay. And I think that's what makes, like you said, a, a good 40 or a good Age of Sigmar general from a great one. Making those decisions to be like, yep, I went first on round two. It could be two full player turns till I get to go again. So how am I going to go interact with that? If you're going first in any given round, you are facing the prospect of a double turn. So you need to get your defensive buffs out. You need to play utility. You need to ask yourself, where can my opponent get in two turns? And obviously it's not a busted mechanic. It's, it doesn't make the game bad if players can go up a 100% win rate against other players of a similar caliber, like Gavin, like you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, I, I think, I think that's been the biggest thing learning competitive is uh, understanding that the, the double turn system is a, it's a, it's a control valve. That's what it is. It, it keeps you from doing degenerate stuff. I can't like Wraith Knight Eldar couldn't work as well. Um, turn one interacting my opponent if it would just fold to a double turn right now to be fair it would also benefit a lot from that double turn but provided there was a balance to make that list building decision lower drops right or rather higher drops um it wouldn't be the same list it wouldn't find the same success right you'd have to make more creative choices that stray away from damage in order to fit within uh what you want as that eldar player i love that i i think that's the most clever thing about this system and i think that's something that a lot of people the double turn gets a lot of bad optics from 40k players because they're thinking in a damage mindset they're not thinking in a utility mindset because 40k rewards so much more uh damage it doesn't care about utility you have a 40 point unit that's going to go in the corner it's going to score you a secondary it's going to die that's the extent of utility in 40k and that's not a bad thing but it is for sure different. It's a different game altogether. I might have a cavalry unit, right? Like your your wind charges or whatever, that are fulfilling multiple jobs. They're scoring me secondaries. They're they're tying up units. They're killing things, right? Um, and because they have these, these different jobs or whatever, they're a lot better for an army that wants to prioritize on both the double turn and maybe not getting the double turn. You know, uh, I think that there are always uh, exceptions to the rule as well. So, mm -hmm. um, well, I, I actually believe when we talk about the double turn, one of the tournament games I played against was um, it was Fire Slayers, and uh, it was a, a build of Fire Slayers where he was playing like three Magma Droths and uh, and Gortrek. Um, and so, for those of you not familiar with that, a Magma Droth is essentially I think like a four or five hundred point like monster. They're very killy, uh, and I made him go first, and I went second because I had the priority roll because I built my list for that. And then at the end of turn one. Um, I got to go second, so like I obviously got to do my damage, and then we rolled, and I won the priority, and I actually ended up, I did end up taking a double here. Now here's the thing: what my opponent did, he shoved those three Magmadroth as far at my face as he possibly could, but he didn't need to. The objectives in this mission were placed in such a case: if you had parked one Magmadroth 18.1 inches away from Teclas, I'm not doing mortal wounds, and if he just plays the mission, plays the objectives, plays with a utility mindset, the double turn doesn't matter. But he didn't, and he had what I maybe is a bit more of the degenerate list you're talking about. It's losing to double turn 
because one, he didn't play for it, and two, his list wasn't designed to be interactive enough to be able to do it. So there are some other lists that try to spam things like Gortrek and things that can be like unrendable uh, in an effort to be like, come get me. Um, and I wonder like to what extent the double turn kind of stops these degenerate lists, these lists that are like, are not really good for the game. They're not really fun to play against. They're kind of just like a stat check or a damage check or, or things like that. Yeah, I think we have to invite a lot of our slow grow league players to kind of identify that for themselves, right? As they're building lists, as they're increasing in points, what are their different decisions that they're making when they realize, oh, I took the things with the biggest numbers and the lowest, uh, you know, ballistics or two hits, two wound characteristics. Why didn't it work? What could I have done better? What decisions could I have made to avoid getting caught out by the fact that I'm just like playing damage? I think that's going to be really interesting um, watching and, and talking to players as they're they're absorbing this, this mindset because a lot of our players are from 40k um, and seeing how they change that. Um, that's going to be one of the most interesting things to me going into, into winter here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I look forward to seeing it. I look forward to continuing to play Age of Sigmar and uh, like seeing how this matters between um, like list building and how to foster a competitive mindset into that. Not that um, sometimes there, there can't be like degeneracy. Um, games Workshop is not a perfect company and I don't think they make perfect games. I think that they exist to sell models. And I think that's going to happen in any game system they, they, they make, whether that's Necromunda or Kill Team or Age of Sigmar or 40k. Uh, and you'll see that as these 40k codexes keep on coming out. Uh, whatever one is out recently, or at least one of every three recently, will be yep. probably overpowered. And we're going to see that right now because in Age of Sigmar, the uh, Cities of Sigmar codex finally got released. They finally got all their models. Uh, and that is a army that is built... Uh, with it needs some it needs some points changes and I think people know that maybe we're gonna see a day one fact the ninety fusilier list is not fun <laughs> right that might be problematic like the uh, the, uh, uh, the pontifex is not fun you know hopefully we'll see some some changes in that or here here's a counter argument for that what if it, with the Andoran season when everyone is playing all of these wizards to get all these awesome spells off. Uh, what if the Pontifex is the balance to that? Saying like, whoa, watch the amount of wizards you take because all of a sudden you could run into this where you're being punished for taking too many wizards. Yeah, there's a there's a line to walk. Um, I think the ally system as we have it doesn't love uh, Zenestra as a, as a check uh, because theoretically any order army could take them bar Seraphon, I think. Um, and that, that makes it a little bit complicated because you never want to be in a system where the biggest, you know, super faction or whatever can take, you know, the same 150 point character model that's going to get nerfed in three months and then nobody's going to take them, right? That's never good. Um, but that being said, if cities is good and, and it will be, um, the Sinestra does absolutely represent that check to, you know, the latter half of the season here where... We don't want to go wide on wizards. You're a Lumineth player, Arthur. Like you, you know this, you know better than anybody. It's it's annoying that you have to consider. Okay, well, you know, I can't just maximize on the season. I have checks to make it work. I think Millstones kind of wanted to do that, and I think uh, from what I heard, we're at about a fifteen percent play rate for Nullstones, which is not like nothing, but it's not um, it's not as uh, uh, potentially dangerous as just 
looking at his Anestra across the board and saying, oh, okay, well, I either have to come to you right now or I lose, right? <laughs> that's that's the kind of the problem that uh, she represents for players like Lumina, uh, Zinch, right? Well, if uh, she becomes very popular, I think what I'm going to end up doing is in Lumineth you have decisions where you take a sergeant or not to make that unit a wizard. And if I'm really worried, uh, if there is so many Sigmar or agent cities of Sigmar players that uh, that becomes a problem, I just stop taking the wizards. And we start taking units like the Blade Lords and the Hammer Guys, because they're not wizards, and the Hurricane Wind Chargers, and we, we swap a sub-faction, we pivot to adapt the meta, and, and we play the game. So It's cool that you can do that. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, it's, it's the sergeants that make them wizards. Um, mm. And actually, I think that, you know, when we look at a lot of these Age of Sigmar armies, uh, there is a lot of choice. When you, if you look at the base game, it's like, oh, well, your your war scroll is just your your box. But it's not, because you can make them battle line. And you can add buffs, and there are support pieces, and some units make other units battle line. For a system, yep. they have finally created a system where your army can be pretty much take anything you want, but, <laughs> right? And, and I think the whole point is giving players agency, um, because when players have agency, when they have the ability to adapt and make decisions, it creates a great game. And I think that's why I love Age of Sigmar. And it is the competitive game that I wish 40k was. That one's just for Scott. Uh, I think that was pretty much everything we wanted to chat about today. Uh, I think we nailed all of that. So I have a challenge for anyone listening out there. Uh, it's to go out and build a Age of Sigmar list. And as you're doing it, write down the order in which you are building the list and the reasons why you're doing it. So kind of check yourself for like how are you doing that. And then reflect, ask yourself, like, am I building the best possible list? Have I considered, um, like, is this too much of a good thing? Do I have enough support? Do I have do I have enough damage? Do I need more damage? Do I have enough utility? What is my local meta doing? How can I adapt to that? Or is the unit that might better fit in here? Uh, am I playing my secondaries? These types of things. But I think that's pretty much all we're going to chat about. So uh, catch us in the slow grow. Catch us on Facebook. Catch us on uh, Instagram and YouTube. Uh, follow the Trident socials. Uh, can't forget to plug our Patreon. Thank you very much for our few Patreon members who are uh, supporting us. That goes a long way. We have some very exciting news to announce with Trident Wargaming coming shortly, including a major next year. I'll leave that alone. Uh, an Age of Sigmar tournament in February or March. I'll leave that one alone as well. And some other events. So stay tuned, everyone, and thank you very much for listening and watching. Thanks, guys.